back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and I have a special guest. What's your name? Wyatt. How old are you, Wyatt? Six. And are you a trapper? Uh, not yet. Are you going to be a trapper? Yes. Now, we bought you your lifetime hunting, fishing, and trapping license. And what did you tell me when I bought that trapping one? You weren't sure if you were going to trap, were you? And I said, you better be trapping because that costs a lot of money, young man. And then a little bit later, you said, I think I want to trap. So do you know what scouting is? Uh-uh. Scouting is what we did yesterday when you go around in the woods and you look for sign. And what did we see for sign yesterday? Otter poop. And what's otter poop mean? It is a, what do we call it? Otter toilet. It's an otter toilet. And so we found an otter toilet where otter came out from the water and he made his trail and he stopped and he pooped and left a bunch of scat. And that means what? Um, that he's going to be back. Yeah, it means he's going to be back because we know those otters make toilets in the same places um, and they keep revisiting those. So what are we going to do there? When trapping set season starts, traps. we're going to set traps. That's right. What else did we see? We saw some another animal sign, didn't we? Didn't we see some beaver sign? Uh-huh. And we saw uh do you remember what I what it was called? A caster mound? Yeah, caster mound. And what is the caster mound? That's a beaver doing what? Marking territory. He's marking his territory. So that's a great spot for us to set a trap over there for beaver too. And we didn't see any muskrat sign, but we know there's muskrats in that area, so we're going to keep looking. All right, young man. Well, I think it's time for you to go to bed and for me to continue with the podcast. But thank you very much for being on. And wish everybody a good podcast. Good podcast. All right. See you later. Oh, kids are great sometimes. He said he wanted to be on the podcast when he heard I was coming in here to record, so that's good. Um, Hopefully get him out and do a little trapping. It's fun taking kids, checking traps. Uh, They always have a lot of enthusiasm, so that's good. And the Trapping Today podcast also has uh, perhaps another few guests here about 50 feet outside of the fur shed in the dark. Uh, You may hear an occasional moo. Uh, I can hear a bunch of uh, chewing on grass. We've got about 38 head of beef cattle uh, mowing down some grass for me right here uh, within the sound of my voice. So a lot's going on here. The Trapping Today podcast, though, is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Cots Bros are trapping supply company out of Savannah, Illinois. You get on that website and they've got all kinds of things for you to check out books, DVDs, traps, <clears throat> lures and baits, urine. They do a lot of stuff there. So uh, Kyle's been been on uh, quite a few shows recently. It's been great to have him here and get people to uh, learn a little bit more about him. And, uh, you know, it, it's just great that uh, they the way they run their business is basically the same way that, uh, that you heard Kyle talk. You know, he's just really straightforward, really knowledgeable and uh, hardworking um, and, and just a great great person him and Kellen great people do business with the podcast is also brought to you by 
Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. Fur Harvesters is an auction house run by trappers for trappers, and they got a great collection of wild fur. They do a great job. Um, they pride themselves in uh, in having top quality selection and attracting a lot of buyers to their different auctions. They hold several auctions a year. You can learn more from about them and how to ship your fur, um, auction results, uh, the different instructions on, on what to do, what how to get fur to them, and uh, the different routes and the pickup schedules. They pick up fur all over uh, North America. You can find more at furharvesters.com. Now we're going to cover a wide variety of subjects tonight. First I'm going to go into a few news items uh, around the trapping world and what's going on. And then we'll get into a little bit of the Alaskan wilderness trapping uh, materials that I've been wanting to get to for quite a while. So let's touch on a few news items. Uh, South Dakota Bounty, Nest Predator Bounty Program. So the state of South Dakota has pledged, like, they put up about half a million dollars to provide bounty money for the removal of nest predators. These include raccoons, striped skunks, badgers, possums, and red fox. And every tail that trappers bring in brings them $10. So it looks like so far the program's been going on for, I don't know, a month or two, and it's been fairly successful. Um, over 23,000 tails have already been submitted uh, in South Dakota, and so people people seem to be really taking this program seriously and uh, doing a lot to control nest predators. I mean, that's quite a bit of money if you think about uh, the incentive there. And of course, the trapping season for these species is open year-round. Now, bounty programs have a long history. Uh, they're not always the most popular. And uh, for there are a couple of reasons bounty programs have gone away for the most part. Number one, they're not popular among uh, a lot of people. Uh, they're, they're kind of a target of animal rights folks uh, because they just, the general public doesn't think highly of bounties uh, overall. Number two, they're usually not all that effective. Uh, however, there are a lot of cases where bounties can be effective and uh, depending on the situation, they can, can be a, a very good investment. Um, but the overall, like the broad bounty programs in the past in, in a lot of places just haven't been all that successful for the money that's been put in. It just take a whole lot of harvest and a whole lot of money to actually control a population uh, of wildlife. Now in South Dakota, pheasants are huge, 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 huge money. The uh, pheasant hunting plays a big part in South Dakota's economy. So uh, it, it would make sense that they'd want to put in a big effort in order to try to control these nest predators in the summer, have more pheasants going into the fall hunting season. Uh, hope, hopefully they see some good results. It, it seems like a whole heck of a lot of money, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen as far as, you know, this bounty program continuing in the future to be funded. Uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. But for those of you who are participating, hey, good for you. Um, hope you're you're out there trapping, taking your family out trapping, catching some critters, and uh, helping to control those nest predators, and also maybe putting a little bounty money in your pocket. Now let's move over to Montana. 
So Montana Trappers, a little heads up. I saw this news story recently and I wanted to bring it to folks' attention. Uh, a new requirement for uh, center swiveling of traps in Montana. So this is Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks wants to remind trappers that the requirement for all traps to have a center swivel and an additional chain swivel becomes effective this coming trapping season, November 1, 2019. Modifying traps to meet this regulation takes a significant amount of time and expense on the part of trappers. FWP wants to thank trappers for their support of this regulation change and the willingness to adapt and modify their equipment. Center swivel requirement applies to all ground set foothold traps that are set for fur bears or wolves and traps set by recreational trappers for coyote, weasel, skunk, fox, badger, or raccoon that are not lethal sets. Body grip, uh, submerged sets, and snares are lethal sets and not subject to the center swivel requirement. And as well, traps set for the specific purpose of livestock or property protection are not subject to the new FWP regulation. This is because statutory authority for livestock protection lies within the Department of Livestock. So, uh, it, you know, there's there's a little bit of an exception there. But basically, you know, your your traps have to be uh, mounted to the center of the base plate for your foothold traps, and uh, that mount has to uh, incorporate a swivel. Um, swivel can be attached directly to the base plate at the center, attached to a D-ring centered on the base plate, or can be included in the chain at a point no more than five chain lengths from a centered D-ring or a base plate attachment point at the center. So, anyway, um, this this is one of those regulations that it's it's kind of a bit controversial. And here's the tough part about it it's a good thing to have center swivel traps and it's a good thing to have an additional swivel on the chain I think all coyote trappers fox trappers um, basically all foothold traps should have that that's that is a good thing that is a good practice the the trouble comes when you start seeing regulations coming into play um, that's kinda of slowly begin to erode a trapper's ability to operate in a certain way. And these regulations can come a little bit at a time and they can also begin to cascade when you have a situation like we trappers have had in Maine where Canada lynx became listed as endangered or as threatened under the Endangered Species Act and we suddenly had a whole wide variety of regulations to contend with uh, in foothold trapping. And it, in Basically what it does, it makes it extremely difficult to operate effectively. It makes your job as a trapper much harder to try to comply with all the regulations. And in my opinion, even though it's a good thing, I think it's an even better thing if trappers are encouraged to do this on their own voluntarily rather than um, having to continually deal with these uh, these added regulation changes. So I don't know the history behind this thing. I'm not going to try to pretend that uh, that I know what's going on there and and uh, and that my opinion is is uh, really that important when it comes to Montana trappers. I think those guys on the ground out there, the guys in the Montana Trappers Association, probably could uh, could give you a much better idea what's going on. I I believe uh, the MTA is opposed to this rule um, as they they have been opposed to a lot of uh, regulate additional regulations 
uh, over the years. And what I would equate this to is um, the the same re- the same way that the National Rifle Association opposes any changes to gun laws, uh, regardless of how small a minority of of people they would affect, regardless of how tiny those laws uh, would be overall, um, because they don't want to allow that foot to get in the door and and allow these changes to uh, to start to kind of snowball. So it, it's a tough it's a tough gig it's a tough deal because I really I really think this is a good thing for trappers to to do this but I don't think it should be um, I don't think it should be a heavy-handed requirement from the government so just my opinion my thoughts but for guys that are out there hey gotta get that done um, if you're gonna keep trapping in Montana so it's good that they're letting you know ahead of time so you can fix those things up prior to the season and. If uh, if it gives you any comfort, um, <laughs> that is far less a requirement that we have to deal with for foothold traps here in Maine. So at least you can use traps with a jaw spread of greater than five and three eighths inches. Um, that's Montana. Uh, let's slide right over to Wyoming because there's kind of <laughs> kind of a funny story here in Wyoming. It's not it's not really funny. It's kind of frustrating, but at the same time, it's uh, it just makes you want to shake your head. So here's something going on in kind of the Jackson Hole, Wyoming area, where, of course, there are a lot of people that have uh, moved into the Jackson Hole, um, very affluent, wealthy people who are um, have sort of city backgrounds or not rural people. People moved in from away, and they... Uh, are looking to make changes to the way things are done um, by the locals. So there are several sh- creeks in this Jackson Hole area that have been uh, open to very limited beaver trapping uh, over the past uh, several decades. They, the regulation basically re- restricted uh, each stream to a single trapper. So you had to put in as a trapper to be able to trap this stream, and you were the only one allowed to trap it. The reason being, uh, the beaver numbers were relatively low here, and they, the uh, Game and Fish Department was concerned about these populations being over-trapped. And in areas in the western U.S. where you have uh, you know, a lot of gradient, really steep ground, beavers are... Are, there's not not quite nearly as much uh, vegetation, uh, more open country, a lot less uh, brush and willows and and alders and and uh, aspens and everything. Uh, beavers are not as common, and the densities are a lot lower. So overall, they provide uh, a lot of benefits to fish and wildlife in these creeks. So having beaver adds a lot of habitat complexity, and, uh, and it's a real benefit. So, of course, limited trapping is uh, a positive there because it allows a certain amount of harvest and it also helps keep those populations healthy. So that was a system that went on for quite some time and it was really successful. So one person was able to trap beavers and um, they did their thing. Um, If they stopped trapping, that was open. Another trapper could put in for it. Now, here's what threw a bit of a, a monkey wrench into things. 
some of these animal rights activist types and people who did not like uh, beaver trapping overall, maybe not activists, but folks that were were kind of uh, not okay with trapping, uh, one guy figured out, hey, I can put my name in for for the right to trap beaver here, and I can get that, and then I just don't trap it. And so I keep every, anybody else from trapping it, and the creek does not have any beaver trapped out of it. And so he tried it, and it worked. He, he got the... He got the permit for this one creek, and uh, nobody else could trap it, and he wasn't a trapper. So he that was kind of, he found that a, kind of a successful way to, quote-unquote, protect the beaver in this creek. So he started telling his yuppie friends, hey, you know, you put in for this one, you put in for that one, you put in for that one. So there were several people putting in for these, and uh, a number of different creeks basically had no beaver trapped at all um, because of this kind of, this scheme by the uh, anti-trappers so Wyoming Game and Fish kind of was like alright fine we're uh, uh, this you know this is part of our management and you're not allowing us to uh, to success to 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 manage these uh, these populations not allowing any harvest alright we're going to open it up to trapping for anybody then that's <laughs> that's the way it's going to be and so uh, they proposed that and then there's a whole big backlash to that so I guess they're kind of uh, in in some uh, we're still in the process of kind of working things out and trying to come up with some uh, some changes that are going to be acceptable to uh, different parties but it's uh, I don't know it's just something crazy can you imagine uh, 30 40 years ago trappers having to deal with this 50 60 years ago it's just unbelievable so that's where uh where how far we've gone with uh with trapping that we have to worry about things like that um anyway sorry jackson hole hope the rest of wyoming uh doesn't have to deal with with much of that on to some better news most of you remember me talking about the stand project and a couple of you actually uh donated to the stand project thank you for doing that i also donated and and is happy to do so. So uh, uh, Ryan and Carrie Walsh are filming Stan's Array. Stan, if you uh, if you ever saw the TV show Mountain Men, Stan is a trapper out of Tanana, Alaska, on the Yukon and Tanana rivers, and uh, he runs a trap line on on uh, dog sled. He's just a great guy. A lot of fun. Um, a lot of fun to talk to and watch. Uh, watch. Uh, running his trap line so you come in the show was canceled uh, a couple years ago and Ryan was one of the guys that actually filmed was on the film crew and he he was with Stan most of the time filming him for the show and he wanted to continue filming and put together this documentary so they had a Kickstarter project that was successfully funded to allow them to travel up there and, and film so they they did a bunch of filming this winter and they just sent another update that they're headed up uh, very soon back to, to Tanana. And they're going to film Stan at his fish camp, uh, catching salmon uh, from with his fish wheel on, on the Yukon River. So uh, more progress is being made there. And uh, if you donated like me, uh, hopefully uh, this by the end of this, we're going to get a nice um, copy, digital copy of... Uh, the show, and hopefully everybody else is going to be able to get a copy 
or, or, or be able to purchase that. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to have for a final product, uh, whether it's going to be aired on, on some network or if it's going to be like a DVD or, or some other um, video that, that you can purchase online to watch. So uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's pretty cool and excited to see more of Stan. And you can also follow Stan, uh, his, his YouTube channel, Stan Zeray. He uh, puts up videos every so often on there too, and uh, really interesting stuff. And now that we are in Alaska, we're going to stay there for quite a little while. This is great. It is, it's just a incredibly complex web. When you get tangled up into this Alaska trapping world and start reading things and researching and talking to people, um, it's just it's just incredible how much is out there. Um, and I've been waist deep in it for a couple years now and loving every minute of it. My friend Jim up in Alaska says that uh, if I keep it up, I'm going to have to start calling this trapping yesterday and not trapping today <laughs> because there's, there's so much history that we're getting into just learning more about these guys. So uh, I, I'm going to get into a reading from... from uh, from a book that I promised a while back. But first I wanted to talk about a more recent book that I've read. And uh, this is called Trails of an Alaska Trapper by Ray Tremblay. And I will put a link to this in the show notes for the podcast. And this book, it, you can it's pretty common. You can find it uh, most places online. Amazon has copies. Uh, I was able to pick up a copy pretty, at a pretty reasonable price. Uh, the book was written in the early 80s. It was published in 1983. And Ray Tremblay was a young man from Massachusetts who was was one of those guys, uh, one of the thousands of people from the lower 48 who moved up to Alaska to live out in the woods. Um, he, he moved to Alaska in 1948. And he was, uh, he, he was just one of those guys that, that knew as a young child he you know he trapped a little bit outside of in outside of town there in Massachusetts when he was a kid in the swamps and stuff and but he he wanted to be in the wilderness and he before going to Alaska he had an uncle that was uh, had a place up in Quebec and he spent a winter there trapping for beaver um, but it just uh, there was something that was drawing him to Alaska so 1949, what Ray Tremblay did. So, so what do you do if you want to go to Alaska and you want to start a trap line? Um, in, in these days, pretty much everything was claimed. There was not a lot of country that you could just go into and, and start cutting trail and, and making yourself a line because there's a pretty good chance you were going to be encroaching on somebody else's trap line. Now, this wasn't like Canada where they had registered trap lines, but there's kind of a code of honor in the bush in Alaska where you don't go on somebody else's trap line. That, you know, that's like taking food off of somebody else's plate. So unless you're invited, um, it's not a good idea. And people, for the most part, people have respected that for a very long time. So what do you do? How do you how do you figure this out? You don't know anybody. You got no relatives, no friends, and no job, and no place to trap. All that Ray had was a strong, strong desire to get out there and trap. 
So he made a really solid decision. What's the best thing you can do? Find a job that allows you to meet as many people as possible and visit all the places that you might potentially be starting uh, a trap line. So he got a job in one of the old Sternwheel River boats. And this was uh, before, you know, b- before uh, air traffic really got going in Alaska. You know, there were planes, but they weren't uh, a common way to transport supplies. And these these big uh, river boats went up the the uh, Yukon River and the Tanana River and delivered supplies throughout uh, up and down the river to all the different villages. And so for uh, quite a while in the summer, he, basically he just lived on these river boats. He worked as a deckhand, kept things going, and loaded and unloaded supplies when they got to the villages. In every village, there was an opportunity to stop in, visit. Sometimes they'd, they'd be there for a while a lot of times. And they would, uh, he, he would go out and just start talking to local people. And if they were there for a couple of days, he'd go out and maybe uh, roam out in the woods around the village, um, go do a little bit of fishing, a little bit of hunting maybe, and uh, just basically get to know people and learn. And, and he, he kind of, he asked, he asked questions uh, to everybody that, that would, uh, would answer. And, and he listened to everybody that was willing to talk with him. And, uh, and Ray learned a lot, and he made connections, and he met people. And so th- this really got him in. After a while on the riverboat, he he made enough connections where he knew he knew who to talk to and where to go. And he had uh, he had heard of this legendary trapper uh, while he was up and down the river on the boats. This trapper was a guy by the name of Fabian Carey. And those of you who are trappers in Alaska know Fabian Carey, the name. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Alaska Trappers Association. And there is an annual award called the Fabian Carey Trapper of the Year Award in, in the ATA. So he was he really was a legendary guy. Um, Fabian was, was kind of larger than life. And I, I guess I think I'm going to... Uh, to read, I was going to read something else, but I think I'm going to read this a little bit, uh, just to give you a little bit of something on Fabian. Um, but basically, uh, Ray Ray was told, you know, you ought to you ought to get in touch with this guy, Fabian Carey. He's on Lake Minchamina, which is basically the dead center of the state, uh, in the shadow of uh, Mount McKinley, the that area that's now uh, Denali National Park uh, on the outskirts of that. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful part of the state. Lots of fur, lots of opportunity for trapping. And Fabian was out there at the time uh, with his wife and two young kids, uh, living living out in the woods full time, trapping, uh, staying there year round. So here's a little excerpt from Ray Trembley's book, uh, Trails of an Alaska Trapper, about Fabian Carey. He's, he's looking for a trap line. He says, My search began in earnest the summer I worked on the riverboat, since I was now traveling the main arteries of the trappers. On several different occasions, I heard Fabian Carey of Lake Minchamina mentioned as one of Alaska's best-known trappers. I was also told the area he trapped was well-known for its martin, and Minchamina was accessible by weekly mail plane. 
I decided on a trip to visit the area to seek out this trapper, so early on a beautiful fall day in September, with rifle and pack, I boarded the Northern Consolidated Airlines DC-3 and departed for my date with Destiny. There were several people at the field to meet the plane, and as I looked around there was no question in my mind which one was Fabian. As I introduced myself to him, it was like being transported back to the Rocky Mountains in the early 1800s and meeting a mountain man. He was big, raw-boned, powerful guy, about six foot four, two 220 pounds, with a booming voice and a smile that left no doubt in my mind that he was just as friendly as he was big. When I told him why I was here, uh, he asked me to help him pack some freight and mail to his boat before going to his cabin where we could talk. I immediately fell in love with Lake Minchamina. It is in the center of Alaska on the north side of the Alaska Range, with the most spectacular view of Mount McKinley and Mount Foraker. The lake is about 12 miles across, and a small settlement is located on a bay in the northwest corner. Fabian's home was about a mile from the airstrip, and as we beached the small boat, we were greeted by his wife Mary and two children, Michael and Kathleen. On the bank was a mound of gear which Fabian indicated was his winter's trapping outfit. He was expecting a gullwing Stinson float plane within the next week to haul him, his dogs, and the outfit to his main trapline cabin about 60 miles to the southwest. Michael, who was about five or six years old, was gathering his own outfit together for an imaginary trip to his trapline. I got a friendly greeting from Fabian's wife, Mary, with an invitation for lunch. She was a remarkable woman with a most interesting background. As a registered nurse, she had come to Alaska in 1938 to work. She met Fabian, whom she eventually married, and spent her honeymoon following him around his trapline with a dog team. I was just as delighted with her stories as I was with Fabian's and the talk continued late into the afternoon. From her, I learned what it was like to be a trapper's wife. She and the children would not see him after he departed in the bush plane until he arrived back with his dog team at Christmas. After the holiday, he'd be off again to return in February after the close of the Martin trapping season. The family would then be together until the next trapping season. There'd be a trip to town to sell fur and purchase needed supplies. Beaver and muskrat trapping would then be pursued in the streams and lakes around Minchamina enabling him to return home each evening. What a life, I thought, and here was a man with a wife willing to keep the home fires burning during the lonely winter months in order to share the wilderness with her husband. Surely he was the richest man in the world. Later that night, after Mary and the children were in bed, Fabian outlined his views on the requirements to become a professional trapper. The primary tools were good health, job interest, single or married, and without children. I questioned him about children, and he reminded me that he was being forced into town next year because his children were now school age. Trapping would no longer be a full-time occupation for him. The secondary requirements were more subtle and harder to define and varied with individuals. They involved one's ability to adjust to the solitary existence as a permanent condition, weighing the rigors of life against the rewards, learning to play the game before enthusiasm faded, and avoiding the traps of our gadget-ridden civilization. The occupation of trapping, he said, is not a mastery of the use of steel trap, a few super-secret formulas, or the ability to wander around the trackless forest without getting lost, but rather it's a way of life. At that point he gazed off, and I knew he was thinking of his past. When he came back to reality, I told him I felt I met all the requirements and was eager to start. Tell you what, he said, take my canoe tomorrow, go moose hunting up Deep Creek. We'll talk again when you return. So anyway, Fabian and uh, 
and Ray talked quite a while. So he spent several days there, um, got to know him pretty well. And Fabian's fellow trapper nearby was a guy named Carl Holt. And Carl was quite a character. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. And I'll let you read more in the book about Carl. But uh, basically, Fabian uh, told Ray that Carl was going to be willing to sell him his trap line. And so Ray went to Fairbanks and he worked two jobs for uh, over half a year, saved as much money as he could to buy Carl out. He bought the trap line, he bought a year's worth of supplies, and he started out on his own trap line with dog sled and dogs, um, a bunch of Carl's tents and cabins, and about 100 miles of trap line. It was quite an adventure, and the rest of the book just talks about Ray's early life there, his his years as as a trapper. It's quite a quite a beautiful place. It sounds like one heck of a a challenge to to actually run a, a successful trap line there, but also incredibly rewarding. Um, in a a beautiful place, beautiful scenery, despite the tough conditions. So that's Trail, Trails in Alaska Trapper. Ray actually wrote a couple of other books about. Uh, what he did after he left the trap line, he actually went to uh, went on to become an enforcement officer for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and he also became a bush pilot. He was a pilot while he was uh, an enforcement officer, and when he retired from that job, he did some other work with the state of Alaska Public Safety um, Air, Aircraft Division. Uh, so. Pretty cool stuff, but uh, it got me thinking more about this Fabian Carey guy. And I was looking around trying to research, figure out you know what there was on him. Of course, he never wrote a book, even though he probably should have. Um, Fabian unfortunately passed away. He was uh, only 59 years old. He had a heart attack. Uh, but he uh, he he made a he made a big impression. He was one of those guys from the lower 48 that moved. Uh, moved up to Alaska to fulfill his dream and um, I I was able to find this one article from the Alaska Journal from 1981 and this is how things kind of come full circle in this big spider web so the only thing I could find he actually Fabian actually did write a couple of fur fishing game uh, articles in in the 40s I believe um, I, I've found since then. But I found this article, and this article is written by a guy named Charlie Mays, M-A-Y-S-E. And the name was immediately uh, rung a bell with me because Charlie Mays was the same Charlie Mays that was good friends with Sam White. Sam White, the Mainer who moved to Alaska and became Alaska's first bush pilot. And uh, if you haven't listen to that podcast uh, you can search for Sam White I, th- I can't remember the episode number but it was uh, f- sometime this past winter I did an episode on Sam White's book and later in life when Sam was living in Fairbanks he spent a lot of time with Charlie Mays and Charlie was from I believe it was from Oregon or Washington State and he always wanted to trap in Alaska so he he moved up there and and he ran a trap line in the bush and he spent a lot of time uh, with Sam, um, especially in the summertime. And they were kind of pen pals with Walter Arnold, who is the famous main trapper who I am 
working on a book uh, covering the works of Walter Arnold, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, more to come on that. Uh, but Walter Arnold, a very famous trapper, uh, wrote dozens and dozens of articles in Fur, Fish, and Game. He was a, a lure maker. Uh, he was His lure business he sold to Oscar Kronk. So Kronk's uh, lures is uh, started with Walter Arnold's formulas. And uh, Arnold corresponded back and forth with Sam White and, and with Charlie Mays. Charlie Mays was also a writer. Charlie Mays also did a bunch of oral history recordings for uh, for the Alaska State Library, and uh, he was he was really into preserving this history of of the bush and trappers. So he wrote this article. It was called "Scion of the Mountain Men" by Charlie Mays. Scion uh, says in Webster's Dictionary, it's a descendant, an heir, a sprout, or an offshoot. In the summer of 1938, when the coastal steamer Olympia made an uneventful landfall at Valdez, she discharged a tall, slender, roughly dressed 20-year-old male passenger. He was accompanied by a 35 caliber Winchester rifle, a then-modern Eastman folding autographic camera, and certain well-worn items of campestrian and life-sustaining equipment. After long thought and inner debate, Fabian Carey had decided to seek a place in the Alaska sun where the untrammeled lifestyle of the historic old mountain men, beloved of legend, might be pursued. He was not brash enough to come green into a new country. Back in hometown Minneapolis, he had put in an enthusiastic trapper's apprenticeship under Mick Dooley, a slightly older companion and boyhood chum. They'd taken mink, muskrat, coon, and skunk in what was to become the concrete canyons of the Twin Cities. Only after his claws and had thus been sharpened in those tame shires, and he felt tough and knowledgeable and hankered for a more challenging environment did he seek Alaska. Although doomed to an occasional disappointment, he and territorial Alaska fell abidingly in love with each other, and he returned to Minnesota only infrequently and remained for short visits. Purely by chance, he elected to begin practicing the carry type of bohemianism in the lower Tanana watershed. He found it to his exact desiderate him and remained in much of the same area most of the last years. Trouble jousted briefly with our eager young Chichaco, his first year in the country. Minor contretemps boy Charlie uses a lot of big words that tested his mettle. An Indian partner decamped with Carey's share of hard garnered furs. He could have just said an Indian stole his fur. This breach of etiquette evoked pursuit, threats, and rough mountain man dialogue plus a display of firearms and an emotional warning. The determined young white man withdrew triumphant with what was owing to him, but he was always wary of his back trail while in the vicinity. He got his furs back. He wrote philosophically of the incident, seemingly after long consideration. Alaska's a great country. I'll make out all right. And so he did, mountain manning it in the deep, tangled wildwood with his small boy enthusiasm undiminished all the rest of his life. Over the long haul, Carey formed several short-term trapline partnerships, but of latter years, Dugan was his sole companion for weeks on end. Dugan, named after the friendly sourdough who conscientiously put Carey under his special care and protection, was a big, genial, black-spotted Dalmatian coach dog of impeccable habits and lengthy pedigree. The Arctic winters made necessary the wearing of a splendidly tailored woolen parka by this short-haired canine. But entirely nonchalant about this handicap, 
Dugan was an enthusiastic co-adventurer in Fabian Carey's frequent escapades. No trail was too long, too rocky, or too rugged. No cold ever too deep to prevent the Dalmatian's eager supervision. Wilderness trapping was Carey's first and most abiding love. Perhaps it was his mode of proving himself inherently possessed of the mountain man's capability of coping with whatever challenge the Arctic could fling at his face. His meandering snowshoes compacted the surfaces of hundreds of miles of wilderness trail systems. His campfire ashes enriched the soil of the taiga and tundra at many a casual bivouac far beyond the restrictions of barbed wire. Thus, in his private and quietly determined fashion, Fabian Carey remained a long-haired trapper until the advent of World War II, although keeping himself gainfully employed during the off-season. He served time as a roughneck on the Gold Creeks of mining camp Fairbanks. He prospected unsuccessfully on the Koyukuk, ran spruce saw logs down the Chena, Salcha, and Tanana rivers, and during the early days of World War II, rafted drums of precious fuel oil down the Yukon River with his power launch, the Cusco. Even this substantial contribution to the defense effort did not allow escape from the long demanding arm of military recruitment. After receiving his greetings from FDR, he served with the Alaska Scouts, Kastner's Cutthroats, from June 4, 1945 to August 1946. He was discharged from the 1st Intelligence Combat Platoon, sporting the hard-won stripes of a staff sergeant, and the usual good conduct and unit citation medals that went with the job. Fabian Carey, man of many parts, was a lifelong bibliophile. What he whimsically referred to as his private archives reflected varied interests, rare and costly books on Alaska exploration, natural history, and scholarly studies of the Civil War. Succumbing at the same time to the collector's mania, he spent many of his hard-earned fur and labor dollars for files of out-of-date outdoor magazines, antique, handmade, and obsolete game traps. So he was a trap collector. By acting rather recklessly with $20 bills, he came up with what was probably the most outstanding collection of bear traps in Alaska. In size, they stair-stepped from the smallest to the largest. Some were handmade, cobbled together by some unlettered mechanic in the backwoods or mining camp blacksmith shop. But most were the product of the professional ironmongers at Lidditz, Pennsylvania, where master mechanic Sewell Newhouse originated the Newhouse Company 20 years prior to the Civil War. In 1966, Carey was knee-deep in meticulous preparations for an Alaska Trappers exhibit at the 67th Centennial Site near Fairbanks, to be held the following summer. Using his own aircraft and supplying his own slender travel burst, he circulated statewide seeking artifacts illustrative of the mountain man lifestyle. Clothing, homemade equipment, hardware, and props of various kinds. He even ferreted out the few surviving dog team mail carriers of the area and displayed their portraits, as well as some of the old long-line trappers. Some of these rare old sourdoughs posed boldly with their Indian wives. The exhibit was a grand success with enthusiastic visitors from all over, but it came to a sad termination. The Tanana River rose in an angry mid-August flood and ruined many of his irreplaceable scroungings. The flood wrote an untimely fini to the exhibition itself and allowed the entry of vandals, who made off with some of Carey's prize artifacts. A wide-ranging wildcrafter and irrepressible explorer and woodsman, Carey inevitably ran counter to some cross-grained bears. Rather casually, Carey described one of these occasions. It was during the winter of 1969, 
Day after day I had carried my heavy old rifle because bears had been hanging around, but it was snowing this day and I figured I could safely leave that heavy old musket in camp. We made contact on a side trail. As usual, I was plodding along with a big pack on my back, parka hood up, daydreaming with my thoughts a thousand miles away from reality. All of a sudden I looked up and there he was, angry and belligerent. And that's the way you're going to meet a grizzly bear if you ever do, when you least expect it. I was armed with determination and a little light trail axe, which was much better than no weapon at all, as I found out that day by bitter experience. I'm still around and kicking, he concluded without going into detail. And he, the bear, is not. On April 26, 1941, Mary Sullivan, registered nurse, New York, New York, and Fabian Carey of Fairbanks were married in Anchorage. In the fullness of time, they were joined by two junior carries, who soon began demanding formalized education and the amenities of modern living not to be found in the hinterland. Meanwhile, the fiscal situation had deteriorated. Fur prices had dropped to ruinous lows, and the fur cycle approached its nadir. Full-time trapping was no longer a rewarding occupation, especially for a young husband who took family obligations seriously. Consequently, the carries became Fairbanks homeowners, and Fabian put broad shoulders to the wheel of industry for the major part of a year. Now he had a family, a comfortable home, credit on Cushman Street, and money in the local counting house. He had as much real reason for traipsing off into the deep, tangled wildwood as the man on the moon, other than his own innate mountain man hankering for doing it. But the trapline activities continued as and when circumstances allowed. After long debate, Fabian Carey decided finally that the time for modernization had come. I gave up sled dog travel 15 years ago, he wrote in 1967, and he became one of the earliest Alaskans to adapt the snowmobile to trapline use. However, he was not long in discovering the hard way the mechanized jackrabbit's disadvantages and shortcomings. After having to walk home several times, he eventually bought and learned to fly a plane to lend logistic support to the snowmobile. Fabian Carey was not much of a joiner. He never got around to signing up with the Alaska Pioneers. He was a card-carrying member of the Operating Engineers Local 302 because his summertime occupation required union representation. He was the first president and probable organizer of the Interior Alaska Trappers Association and a charter member of the Tanana Yukon Historical Society. The largest turnout that organization ever mustered was on the evening of February 22, 1968 when Carey emerged from brief obscurity to lecture on some of his natural history observations. Carey had correspondents worldwide. One of these fortunate individuals was Kermit Stearns of Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania. For his benefit, Carey described some of the problems confronting a rank Chichaco. Had a kid stop by here to inquire about trapping, he wrote in August 15, 1971. Well, he went out into the sticks and found an old tumble-down cabin had a fellow fly in a couple plane loads of outfit for winter's trapping. Two weeks later, some pilot flew his wife in with a sack of flour. She didn't even know how to cook split peas, or that it took yeast to make bread. The kids still didn't have the roof on the cabin, six by eight feet, and said that it was a two-man job, so they're surely in for a long, tough winter. It takes me three days to put up an eight-by-eight line cabin, complete with gable roof. Another day to finish it off and make door and window frames, and put in the stovepipe safe, safety, make a pole bunk and table, shovel dirt on the roof and move in. And I mean into a nice, comfortable cabin. I could have done better than him at 17 when I built my first one. But then I didn't have all the answers like this smart kid does. His wife is the one I feel sorry for. 
Some people, he said, are critical of trappers, saying they employ methods that are cruel and inhumane. But it should be remembered that the trappers were the original conservationists, going into an area and utilizing the wildlife without disturbing the environment or upsetting the balance of nature. Unlike the farmer, he does not cultivate the friendship and dependence of an animal falsely, gain his confidence, and then, impelled solely by the profit motive, heartlessly send it to the slaughterhouse. Ugh, that hurts being a farmer myself. If I can't live in the woods like I prefer, I will work at whatever gives me the greatest freedom in time and energy. I like construction work because I can live my own life during the off-season. During 1951 and 52, Fabian Carey was a territorial policeman, but his sympathy for the underdog was too thoroughly ingrained for playing cops and robbers in any but a very low key. While he wore the blues proudly and with becoming dignity, he made no historic arrests and ran to earth none of the North's most wanted criminals. Not too surprisingly, Carey entertained the notion of book writing in the back of his head for 20 years. To that end, he kept years-long diaries, penned voluminous notes, and snapped many pictures. He even flew all the way to New York to consult publishing firms in their dens, so to speak. He was knee-deep in this special task when the death angel snatched away his pen. My personal tragedy was in knowing Fabian Carey a little less than 10 years. To associate with him was to attend a constant fish fry, mountain man style. Nearly 20 years my junior, he was yet an unquestioned source of technical information and Alaska advice, always freely given. His final cherished words came by telephone after long absence. Unwittingly, I called him away from his well-earned dinner. After a 12-hour workday around heavy equipment with its constant roar, confusion, fumes, and danger, Yet his greeting was spontaneous, warm, friendly, and devoid of all rancor. Well, old man, he said, in that special higher octave he reserved for emotional exchanges, it's surely good to hear your voice again. Born in Minneapolis, March 19, 9, 1917, Fabian Jeremiah Carey died at his work seven miles south of Fairbanks, September 11, 1975. September 13 could not have been a finer day. From horizon to horizon, Indian summer ruled the smiling land. The willows, poplars, and birches were resplendent in reds and browns and golds, as they can only be as they can be only in interior Alaska at the autumn of the year. And above the great Tanana Valley, stretching into infinity, a delft blue sky and cloudscape incomparable. Some hundred and fifty of us, his peers and personal friends, co-workers and acquaintances, had gathered with his family on Esther Dome the greatest eminence within a reasonable distance of Fairbanks. It would not have been difficult to imagine Fabian's physical presence, moving gracefully among us with his long woodsman's stride and a mountain man's soft moccasins and fringed buckskins. Hat shoved back on his light-colored hair, striking blue-gray eyes, and mischievously alert to every small detail. Mouthing Irish jokes and pointing observations around an overlong and fragrant cigar. But Fabian J. Carey, age 58, had succumbed to a massive heart attack two days previous. Our special mission was to hold a brief commemorative for the living, to mouth inadequate words of sympathy, extol peculiar virtues of the late deceased, console his widow and orphans, and assuage our private grief as well as possible deep emotional shock. Let's give Fabian a great hand. This impulsive suggestion came from one of the leaders of those present. Later, members of his family and a few special friends overflew his trapline trails by chartered aircraft, 
Sadly, they committed his ashes and those of the ever-cooperative Dugan to the four winds, in the wilderness area where the pair of them had mountain-manned it for many happy years. Only a handful of us, wrote Fabian, lived to fulfill our boyhood dream of following the far trails and seeking lost horizons. My blazes are weathering at many a remote campsite and along many an unmapped stream and mountain glade. I am well content. So that's kind of the long, difficult worded version of Fabian Carey's story. Um, and uh, the, the guy was, was certainly an interesting character and uh, one of the modern, I guess, modern day mountain men of his time. It just goes to show that, you know, there still was the opportunity to do that and, and to move out and live that lifestyle. And a lot of people did. This guy was pretty neat. He was larger than life. So thanks for sticking around for a little bit of that Alaska trapping history. And if you're interested in that stuff, uh, no need to worry. You're going to hear more of it from me. Uh, but in addition, there are a lot of online resources uh, where you can find more information about uh, Alaska trappers and, and the history there. Probably the the biggest one that I've been listening to lately is the Alaska Trappers Association Oral Histories. And if you go to the Alaska Trappers Association website, um, you can find these. It's alaskatrappers.org. And they have a number of different recordings from uh, old-timer trappers. You can purchase those as MP3 files that you can play on your computer, play on your phone. And um, they are, I believe, $2.50 a piece. And each interview is like between half hour and an hour. And there's a lot of interesting ones there. I've, I've listened to, oh, about half a dozen of them. And uh, there, there are a lot more to get through, and, and I look forward to getting through them all. So check that out, um, Alaska Trappers Association Oral Histories, for more information. We're going to talk more in the future. I, want, I still want to get into a little bit about James A. Carroll's uh, trip to the Old Crow Flats um, to trap muskrats way back in the day. Um, I, it's just a, it's just incredible the things that these guys did and the, the hardships they went through and how tough they really were. Um, anyway, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as always, send me an email, jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. Love to hear from you guys. Thanks for those of you who have sent me emails in the past. And uh, if you have anything you want us to cover on the podcast, uh, just let me know. Let's let's get into some other trapping-related topics as we're getting ready for the season. I know we're in the middle of the summer, in the off-season, uh, but it's never too early to get out there in the woods, do some scouting, to get those traps ready, to go through your traps and uh, fix them up. So um, keep on thinking trapping, keep on talking trapping. Uh, send me an email um, about trapping, and let's uh, let's get ready for next season. Thanks again, and we'll catch you on the next episode.